Duran Duran, View to a Kill, from, I think, the film of the same name, if I remember correctly. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes. The film was good, the song was appalling. <laughs> <laughs> Not your favourite track that I've chosen, then. No, but, you know, break us in easily. <laughs> yes, it indeed. as we mean to go on. Yes, yeah, so, uh, a very good morning to, uh, to Daniel Mumby. We're back to normal. It's good to be back. Yeah, are you yes. planning on jaunting off around the world again next No, week? not for a little while. Okay, that's all right while. then. So, uh, yes, uh, I was out in, um, Singapore and Malaysia a week ago. Yes, Only a week ago. Yes. And, uh, also up at the rugby in Edinburgh, which is at why I wasn't actually here on Saturday morning, but before that I'd been all okay. over the place. Fair so, enough. uh, but caught up on a few films on the plane. Do tell. That's good. I, uh, I saw True Grits. Pro yeah. Pronounced properly. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and it was one of those, it was getting towards the end of the last flight home and, uh, 30 hours flying, you're losing the will to live. And I was thinking, oh, this will send me to sleep, but I actually really enjoyed it. So yeah. I, very, I, very classy film, I think. Yeah, it is classy. I mean, I like I say I don't think it's a masterpiece, but it is. Yes. I think it's better than the original. Yes, more, more sort of um, down to earth. Than I think the, the the first take of it, which was yeah, it was a John John Wayne. Uh, yeah, and no, vehicle, all, wasn't all it? John Wayne films are essentially the same. Yes, so it was very good, and the uh, little girl was excellent. Oh yes, Hayley Steinfeld. Yes, uh, yeah, because she lost out the. Uh, she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but she lost out to um, Melissa Leo for The Fighter, and that was the one notable thing about the Oscars, was that she got up and, well, said the F word a few times, and there wasn't the five-second delay, so it was all broadcast <laughs> live. Oh, dear. Oh, yes. dear. What fun. <laughs> uh, and then I got to see um, Harry Potter and the first part of The Deathly Hallows. Yeah. Uh, which, I have to say, is not my favourite of the series. Yeah, I mean, I've only seen up to Azkaban, of which Azkaban is by far and away the best. So. Yeah. I mean, I think in the case of Harry Potter, you won't be able to judge until the second one comes out yeah, this July. No. So, and it was—I mean—it was a very good book and very pacey. But I don't know something about the uh, the fun of the school that obviously gets missed from the last book. And I don't think we're giving too much of the plot away there. Um, that you sort of um, think uh, maybe it's not quite the same. But I suppose it had to finish differently, otherwise there. there well, was bear no in way. mind they're nearly adults by yeah. the time you get to the end of book seven. Indeed, so, indeed, yes. yeah. And then. Um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the third of the Narnia trilogy. Mm. Uh, trilogy goes on forever, doesn't it? The Narnia the series. The yes. seven, but they're doing them in the order that they're yes. written, rather yeah. than the order in which you read yeah. them. And I thought that was really good. Um, mm. It was the only one that's ever made me want to go back and read the books. I mean, I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe many times when I was young, and then obviously enjoyed the film. Uh, saw Prince Caspian round about Christmas time, I think it was, and that was okay as a film, although. Felt a bit like the first film, just slightly different. <laughs> but I think uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader was fascinating. The um, the the very clear um, religious faith allegory um, is the word you're searching for. Yes. That's the word. Yes, yes. and uh, and that's made me fascinated to actually go right and read the books, um, probably from number three onwards i guess yeah i mean i've only seen the first narnia film which yeah. which is pretty good i mean it's made by and those two are made by andrew adamson who directed the first two shrek films so they come with a certain amount of sort of tongue-in-cheek light-heartedness um yeah i will i'll probably check voyage of the dawn trader out on dvd because that that's the one of the books which sort of gets a bit of stick because of um it's because, you know, there's the whole thing in the Narnia books about um, Peter and Susan having grown up. Yeah. And there's a line in it somewhere where C.S. Lewis says, um, 
uh, as the author, uh, Susan has sort of lost interest in you know, Aslan and Naya and so forth and become interested in lipstick and boys, which is sort of interpreted as being incredibly sexist. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's all sorts of debate about, you no know, because Lewis was a bit of a conservative old yes. fool in some aspects of what he thought, but, you no, know, very intelligent theologian. I'll check it out. And, you know, yes. Thank God, you for that. From God to the devil, no doubt. <laughs> right. So, we've got Mad Max 2 coming up. We do. That's the top ten, some of which I recognise and some of which I don't. So, uh, well, one, one of them says here, no synopsis available on my script, so I'm hoping you've got one on your script. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've got a feeling I know which one that is, yes. but we'll come yeah. to it. Number ten, Nomeo and Juliet. I guess that's probably the last week we'll be talking about yeah. this one. Yeah, it's on the way out. I mean, it's... It's had a good run for what is essentially kind of ropey, innocuous half-term animation. I don't bear it any particular ill will, it's just not very good. Right. At uh, number nine, and we haven't quite decided when this one's going to fall out of the charts, have we? The, uh, no, we the didn't get round to doing our wager, but I'm, I'm going to say this will be the last week. Right, okay. Well, if you, it is the last week, your chance to catch it is at the Annick Playhouse tonight at 7.30. And at the Maltings in Berwick tomorrow... Monday, Tuesday and Thursday. And that's uh, 2.30 tomorrow, 1 o'clock Monday afternoon, 8 o'clock Tuesday evening, 7 o'clock Thursday evening. And if you didn't catch all that lot, um, they, it's all in the Gazette, page 12. Which he's holding in front of him because it, he couldn't be bothered to memorise it. No. <laughs> well, they're all odd times, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Number eight, the Adjustment Bureau. I guess that's on its uh, way out as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate because I think it's quite good, silly fun. I mean, I like Matt Damon very much. He's sort of slowly but surely become one of my favourite actors. Of course, when he started out in things like Stuck on You, the Farrelly Brothers film, I wasn't. I was thinking, well, it's he might just be one of, one of these pretty boys who's come through the Academy. But he is very good, and I'll see anything with Terence Zod stamping. Um, I mean, like I say, it is in the end Inception light, and it's not up there with the Bourne series, but it's perfectly enjoyable. And was he a bit thinner and fitter for this one? Because wasn't it the third one where he, he was a bit sort of plump? You were talking about the third Bourne film? Yes. No, in the third Bourne film he the was... the one he had to lose weight for because he was... Um, what happened, let's see, 2006, seven? no, because he, he put on a lot of weight to do The Good Shepherd, which was right. the film about the foundation of the CIA, and then he had to get in tone to do the, the third Bourne film. No, in the third Bourne film he's very sort of pumped up and right. muscular, um, but he's lost a lot of the weight that he had to do for True Grit, because in that he is incredibly yeah. flabby. Yes. <laughs> And I say that as someone who isn't, who is carrying around more than he should. That's right. <laughs> right, new entry at number seven, and one I've not heard of before, Anuverhood. Anuverhood, yeah. Anuverhood. I'm guessing this is the one you don't have a synopsis for. Uh, no, I don't. Oh, right, I was wrong. Well, there's no reason, because it's awful. It's a comedy about someone in Britain trying to be a gangster and failing miserably. It's kind of, it's one of those comedies which is painted with such broad strokes that if you watch the trailer, you don't need to see the film, and it looks every bit as cheap as a Wayans Brothers comedy, and it'll be out by next week. <laughs> you like it. Just about as much as I like uh, number six, Hall Pass. Yeah, now, you were saying when we reviewed this um, two weeks ago that its only redeeming feature was that it was filmed near where you grew up. Yes, that's right, in Atlanta, yeah. How long did you live in Atlanta? Two and a half years. Right. Um, it isn't funny, um, so you, you know, we agree on that. It is further proof that the Farrelly brothers look increasingly like a spent force. The central problem I have with this is that it tries to be a film about kind of monogamy and conservative values, but it does so in amongst kind of endless adolescent shots of cleavage and binge drinking. I mean, at least when National Lampoon's Animal House was doing that sort of thing, they were very upfront about the fact of, no, we're not trying anything intellectual here. It is just a load of adolescent teenagers farting and drinking and swearing. And, and it was new. It was new, and then obviously you get 
know, Porky's and Lemon Popsicle yeah. and those sort of much more derivative, much more putrid films which sort of take the Animal House formula. And so my advice is if you want a sort of bawdy comedy, go and get Animal House on DVD. I mean, it's not John Landis's best work because that's American Werewolf in London, but it is a very funny film and it's the best thing John Belushi's ever yeah. done. I mean, I thought, I mean, I liked Animal House when it first came out. It was different, it was fun, uh, everything else like that. After that just felt like repeating the same formula one way or another. Yeah, I mean, Porky's was notable for the fact that it was, it did kind of push the envelope of exactly what you could show on screen in terms of teenagers trying to get laid, but then after that you do start to think, actually, this is quite, well, reprehensible in its attitude to women. But Adam House was fine the first time around. Right. Another new entry, number five, The Lincoln Lawyer. Which is essentially a TV movie, although it's nice to see Matthew McConaughey doing something a little more serious than his kind of endless rom-com appearances. I mean, it is essentially the same character as he plays in A Time to Kill, which was only notable for the fact that it's one of, I think, only two films in which Donald and Kiefer Sutherland appear on screen together. And, um, but yeah, I mean, the film's fine, but like I say, it's, it's not particularly cinematic. Right. Now, the next one is the one that says here, no synopsis available. Number four, new entry for Chalet Girl, and I haven't heard of that one. Well, it's a low-budget British comedy, and the story is that you have a girl who's played by Felicity Jones, I think. She's a skateboarding champion. She goes off to become um, a skiing instructor at this um, posh resort, which is run by a very grumpy Bill Nye. Well, Bill Nye basically being Bill Nye, as he so often does in these comedies. And then she sort of falls in love with someone. Anyway, it is an, it's a Richard Curtis light comedy. I mean, I like you know, Richard Curtis, even when he's being sort of baggy and stuff with uh, Love Actually. But I'll see pretty much anything which has got Bill Bailey in, because yeah. he's in, you no, know, he has the supporting role in Hot Fuzz as the twin police officers, which is quite funny. And it's good to see um, Brooke Shields back on the screen, because she... Snit. Yeah, yes. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of her early work, like Blue Lagoon, but she has, she's sort of having a bit of a resurgence recently, and uh, she gave an interview to the Times a couple of weeks ago, and she seemed sort of really level-headed for someone who's been through what she's been. Yeah, indeed, yes. Well, that's an interesting one. Number three, Unknown. Which, if you've seen the trailer, you've pretty much seen the film. I mean, we're both fans of Liam Neeson, but it is a very... And he's the thing that sort of carries this very run-of-the-mill action thriller. I mean, it's worth seeing for the supporting performance by Bruno Ganz, who, of course, was in Downfall and Wings of Desire and Far Away So Close. Very good films. But otherwise, if it's not that good, and if, like me, you're a kind of fan of the Philip K. Dick sort of paranoid conspiracy thriller, you will come, in, you will come out of it feeling like you've been a bit short-changed. Ah, uh, right. Uh, number two, ba Battle Los Angeles. <laughs> Yet another example of the havoc that Michael Bay and his legions are wreaking upon Hollywood cinema. It's directed by Jonathan Liebesman, who did The Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the beginning, which was just pointless and very badly made. This is essentially what would have happened if you'd given Michael Bay the gig of Independence Day. Because yeah. the whole thing about Independence Day, I mean, a lot of people think, oh, it's stupid, it doesn't make any sense. There are little things in Independence Day which sort of redeem it. I mean, the idea of, you know, uploading the um, virus for an Apple Mac computer to kill the spaceships is essentially a kind of 90s riff on War of the Worlds, and I think that's done quite well. But this, it's just lots of shouting, lots of incoherent dialogue, the rubbish CGI, and in the end, it's not very fun. It's a bit of a mixed bunch this week, isn't it? <laughs> it always is, Richard. Yes. You act as if you're so sort of naive and it's all <laughs> its all this wonderful new phenomenon. You just have to be you know, take everything with a pinch of salt, right. of course. But, uh, number one, I think this was number one a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? It Rango. went down to two yeah. and then back up. Yes, yes Rango. Which is fine. Um, probably Gore Verbinski's best film, not that that's saying a huge amount. Don't come to me, though, if it leads to Gore Verbinski kind of rolling out the next lot of Pirates of the Caribbean films or their equivalent. Incidentally, the new trailers for Pirates of the Caribbean 4, which is called On Stranger Tides, have come out, and they look, frankly, awful. <laughs> yeah. And if the trailer's not good... 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not always a reliable guide, but no, in the modern blockbuster, trailers kind of give you a rough indication of almost everything that's in the film. So if that doesn't grip you, I don't know what will. Right. So, what do you think the picks are this week? The Adjustment Bureau? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm taking it that most people have seen The King's Speech by yeah. now. Um, but obviously, like you say, the screening in Anakin, uh, the maltings in Berwick, if you haven't already. Yeah, I think The Adjustment Bureau is the standout in the current top ten, but there are a couple in this week's new releases which you should check yes. out. Which you were enthusing about uh, before we started, so we'll get to that later. Indeed. Right. Well, shall we take a quick break and then we'll have a little look at uh, Mad Max 2. The Road Warrior. Lionheart Radio. That was Haig and Fool. Well, this week's uh, cult film. I'd even Thank you for bringing me in. Put your microphone on. That wouldn't have lasted very long. But anyway, uh, Christmas Eve. This week, Richard will be talking to himself yes. about this cult film, which he hasn't seen. <laughs> Christmas Eve, 1981. It was released. Mad Max 2, also known as the Road Warrior in the US. Yes, um, it was called the Road Warrior in the US because the original Mad Max hadn't taken very much money in the United States. So they thought, well, if we release it as Mad Max 2, no one will go to see it. It's like the old joke about Americans didn't go and see Henry V because they hadn't seen parts one to four. <laughs> Uh, so, a bit of background to start off with. It's the 1981 sequel to Mad Max, which, like I say, was released as The Road Warrior, directed, as before, by John Mil George Miller and produced by Baron Kennedy. They'd f uh, first collaborated before Mad Max eight years ago on a short film called Violence in the Cinema Part One, which I haven't seen, but is apparently a sort of much sought-after rarity among Mad Max fans. It's kind of bootlegged around Australia. Um, because of the limited international success of Mad Max, the budget was still only around 400,000 US dollars. Yeah, I was going to ask they put a proper budget in for this one. Well, they put a, they had a bit of help on the marketing front. I mean, you know, the budget that a film gets sort of because marketing's contracted out, then you sort of get an extra amount on top of that to do publicity. So there was a little bit more available, but in terms of actually shooting the stunts and paying the actors, they had about the same amount. And bear in mind, of course, that that's not adjusted for inflation. Yeah. So a quick plot summary. Um, the story picks up a little bit of time after the ending of Mad Max, uh, so it's in a post-apocalyptic Australia. The cause of the apocalypse is never completely identified, but the result of which is it's a world which is primal and chronically short of fuel. You have uh, Max Rokotansky, or Mad Max, played by uh, Mel Gibson. He's a lone figure kind of driving around the wasteland searching for fuel and fighting off gangs of bikers who are a lot more vicious than the ones in the first film, and that's saying quite a lot. Um, in his search, he comes across a community of settlers who are running one of the last working oil refineries in the world. Uh, the refinery is being attacked by a large gang of bikers who are commanded by a fascistic figure called the Humongous, who is played by Swedish Olympic weightlifter Kajel Nelson, who unfortunately didn't have a good career afterwards because he has the whole, he does the whole film with a hockey mask on his face. <laughs> and, uh, no, it's implied that he has some kind of facial injury. Max is only initially attracted to the refinery because he wants fuel so he can, you know, put it yeah. in his the last of the V8 interceptors and go off. Um, but eventually he gets drawn into the conflict against his will. There's sort of a debate about that and he has to decide whether to just escape and leave them to their fate or whether he actually has to help them. So here's the thing. Um, making a sequel that's as good as the original is tough, especially when that, that original happens to be Mad Max. Indeed. But suffice to say, George Miller managed it. Um, he's created something which is on a par with, if not slightly better than the first film, and certainly it looks much more professional than the first film. It's a kind of blend of action-adventure and political philosophy, which still feels exciting and relevant after 30 years. The thing that kind of sets it apart is there is a big initial departure in tone from the first film, which sort of sets up of, okay, this is going to be a slightly more mature work. I mean, I love the first film, but it is a very rough-and-ready exploitation film, which just happens to have 
acres and acres of substance. Remember it well, yes. Yes, we do. And if you haven't heard the, our review of Mad Max 1, you can go and uh, check that out on the podcast on the Lionheart website. Because um, the, the first Mad Max film, it started off as an all-guns-blazing action horror. I mean, it opened with a ten-minute chase sequence, so you know it's going to be rough and ready, whereas Mad Max 2 starts with a kind of a narrated opening section which fleshes out some of the nature of the apocalypse. Now, there is a debate in this about whether it is more kind of interesting from the point of view of filmmaking to give characters backstory or to leave it open. I mean, as a general rule, do you think it's best to know all about a character or do, or can you, do you find it easy enough to sort of identify with someone if their background is not explained? Uh, I think generally you'll pick it up. I guess the only exception, I guess, is where there's real fact history. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, that that context is important, you know, if it's, if it's based on either real facts or against the background of real facts. As opposed to unreal facts. As it's <laughs> slightly made up, then uh, you might as well pick it out from the, uh, from the, the, drift, the drift of the film. Yeah. I mean, so on the one, from that point of view, on the one hand, the opening section is a little bit disappointing because, like I say, one of the things that made Man Max so great was that it was completely unapologetic of what it was. It's just, mm, big engines go with it. Yeah. Whereas, but on the other hand, once you sort of adjust to this tone, it does sort of lead you in to the film and gets that sort of gear change over so you're not just sitting there thinking, well, this is boring. When are the explosions going to start? It's, it's very much like the film is saying, OK, we gave you loads of spectacle the first time around, now you've got to think a little bit harder. There's still yeah. going to be lots of action, which we'll come on to, but it, you know, it's you know, playing to a more mature audience. It's a very interesting device, the opening, because it talks about a futuristic war between kind of two great warrior tribes at a time when the world was powered by the black fuel. And I promise I won't do Australian accents all the way through. But they intercut that narration with stock footage, which looks like from the two world wars. Yeah. So it's making a kind of, it sort of consolidates the thesis of the, the first film and gives us plot continuity. The first film's idea basically being man will become more primal when resources grow scarce. And then it adds on to that, that war is a kind of inevitable recurrence and Miller's trying to say that, look, if you don't get your act together, history's going to repeat itself a lot more drastically than it did in the past, which is quite a bold statement. You know, it seems to happened. be almost the stock plot for most future-based films. Yes, you look but... At, you look at the Star Wars series, and you know, the basic pre premise seems to be that we're going to go sort of a bit primal and a bit... Well, no, yeah, I mean... Uh, wearing desert gowns and... Well, Star Wars isn't... I mean, the scenes on Tatooine are primal, but that's because it's in, that's an area in the kind of the outer rim of the galaxy. Um, no, most of, the, most of the time, from my point of view, Star Wars is quite civilised, to yeah. be honest. But I, I understand. It, it, is, it, it is generic, but Mad Max kind of takes its own approach to it. And now, like I say, if you're familiar with the first film, you'll kind of understand it. So, like I say, that's the thesis that it kind of puts out. In turn, it's, it's interesting you've brought it onto Star Wars because there are little hints in the visuals of Mad Max 2 of a number of other films which were made around the same time that Miller must have either seen or been influenced by. I mean, it, when they're in the oil refinery, kind of, you know, having all these debates about, you know, democracy and contracts and whether it's all right to go out fighting, those sections do look a bit like The Empire Strikes Back. You remember the early scenes of The, of, um, the Empire Strikes Back when they're in the ice base? Yes. And everyone's yeah. wandering around in these kind of big duffel coats with these... There's a sequence of Roy Scheider where he's driving through this kind of rocky maze, running out of fuel, and he doesn't know where he's going, and it just keeps shifting to give the impression that he's been in there for days. The closest comparison, however, on a visual level is with Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, quite apart from the fact that both films essentially have a massive truck chase in the middle of them. Yeah. Would you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark first time round? 
Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure I did. Because yes. that was one of the first films, if I'm right, I think one of the very first films to be actually filmed in widescreen. So you would have got the full on cinema experience if you'd gone to see it. Uh, I can't remember the technology piece of it, but I certainly remember going to see it. It was a great film. Yeah, um, I would actually argue, given the choice, that this is better than Raiders. Although I'm, no, I love the Indiana Jones series. Last Crusade is one of my favourite films. The thing about the, the two films, I mean, like I say, if, you, if you're comparing them on the basis of the truck chase, Spielberg's film is very good fun, but it is essentially a kind of matinee idol pantomime romp. I don't have any problem with that, but basically you're not worrying how many Nazis are getting killed because yeah. they're all sort of cardboard cutouts. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like all those exploitation films where um, whenever there's a big action set piece, it's, it's always the same guy doing the stunts but wearing a different yes. moustache or a different wig, so it looks like it's a different soldier, and it's always the same scream over cut to them. Um, whereas in Mad Max 2... Every single henchman or villain seems to have their own kind of complete personality and set of character traits, and you see the sort of the conflicts between the humongous gang. There's a wonderful moment at the start, which is you know, full on because it's an 18 certificate, where um, this feral kid who sort of comes out of the shrubland and helps Max, he's got this uh, sharpened boomerang and he kind of flings it into the air, and one of the humongous's uh, cohort says, "It's okay, I'll catch it," and he reaches out again and it cuts his fingers off, Ooh. and the rest of the gang kind of burst into laughter. I mean, it is like I say, it's full on. You do see the fingers coming off but it is quite good for a laugh in that sort of blackly comedic way and you know it doesn't glorify the violence and if you're at home way. just finishing your breakfast just <laughs> put it to one side yeah i'm sorry about that. it's half past ten people won't be having their breakfast yeah uh yeah so there are comparisons with that although i mean raiders of the lost art looks much more professional because it was made for more money yeah. but in terms of actually identifying with both sides mad max 2 is the better film i mean the action scenes are brilliant i'm going to say that for a start i mean there's great wire workers in the first film everyone's doing their own stunts you've got very elaborate choreography i mean the chasing with the truck goes on for the best part of 10 minutes but it never feels like oh come on come on just crash it already you know yeah. we've been hanging around it's so miller's a very good action director in the sense that he manages to take this elaborately choreographed stunt and make it look like it's just happening spontaneously and it is kinetic and because you believe in both heroes and villains Every single time anyone gets hurt, you feel it. Yeah. Because it is, you no, know, not just realistically set, but it, and because the fact that you feel their pain, it means that even if the action kind of goes on for 10 minutes or more, it doesn't feel like a set piece that is propping up the weaknesses yeah. of the plot. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating how they could do that for low budget, and then other films you'd have spent millions just to do something much shorter yeah i mean in, in terms of i mean to use the comparison with raiders again i mean i don't know what the budget for raiders was i mean it mustn't have been huge amount considering that it was made after spielberg tanked 1941 which is an appalling film um but if you look at that raiders it's very much kind of there's lots and lots of cuts which means that it was filmed in small sections yeah. and all, or whereas with mad max because there's much more sort of aerial shots it was it would have been very much a case of okay we've got this four mile stretch of road we know we've got to drive from here to here and there'll be cameras at xyz points yeah. along and we'll just kind of shout okay you start turning on now because it's coming down the yeah. road so and as a result you do get a sense of actually this is quite spontaneous but in the end the central I what makes Mad Max 2 so great, even though it's a fantastic action film in its own right, is not just the full-on action. It is the kind of the politics and the philosophy, if you like, at the heart of it. I mean, it seems rather unusual to talk about philosophy in a film which, like I say, does involve people having their fingers cut off and, you know, there is a fair bit of language and bloody violence. But you have a fascinating thesis at the heart of it, which is the film is about 
not just the survival of humanity after an apocalypse, but what sort of shape that society will take, you know, how it will be organized politically, and how is it going to be defined morally? And, I mean, you, that was explored to some extent in the sequel to this Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which we'll cover in a few weeks' time. But it essentially presents three options to us in the, uh, the various kind of groups. The first option it presents, which is represented by the humongous in the gang, is essentially we're going to retreat to a primal order and it's going to be essentially fascism. Because you have the humongous' followers, which are kind sort of animalistic and anti-intellectual. They're manipulated by the hypnotic rhetoric of their charismatic leader. Starting to sound familiar now. Yes, indeed. I mean, it's, it's like instead of a salute or a funny moustache, it's a hockey mask, <laughs> but it's still a device to kind of to pull the masses in. And there is a mixture, like in, you know, Nazism or Italian fascism, of sort of enticement, you know, the love of uh, order and hierarchy and feeling like you're a component part of the universe with unrelenting violence of do as we say or we'll smash your face in. But, although the film kind of makes a very comprehensive analysis of their politics, it doesn't, it kind of shows how, in the end, the humongous gang is sort of fragmented and there's infighting like the scene I just described to you. So it's like, well, it philosophically adds up, but it's not a tenable way of living. The second option they present is that of the settlers, which is sort of, they stand up for justice and rights, but they don't have the guts to stand up for it, if you see what they mean. So you, they have lots of conversations with the people in the oil refinery about contracts. They make their decisions docu uh, not documentarily, democratically. And they refer to Max Throut as the honourable man, because he's sort of... I don't think his name is ever said in the film. Uh, so they're civilised and they're organised, but the point is that they don't have the kind of... Yeah. the ruthless edge to kind of say, we can fight for this beyond self-defence. And you know, as a result, they don't, they don't have the actual character for fighting. It's not yeah. that they don't believe in watch that they don't have the actual guts to go out and do it because they're all intellectuals and i don't have any problem with intellectuals but the film is arguing you need more than that this brings us to the third option which is embodied by two characters max first off and there is a character called the gyro captain who sort of finds max in the wilderness he's got this sort of micro light and he takes him to the refinery saying you know i can find you i can show you where there's gasoline if you don't if you make sure that your car isn't booby trapped so you have these characters who have traits of both sides, you know, they live in the wild, but they, you know, they still speak and they're still human to some extent, and they sort of walk the tightrope between them, and in the case of Max, because of all the stuff he's been through in the first film, you know, going mad, losing his family, you know, killing a lot of people, you're never quite sure whether he's just going to suddenly tip over into it. I mean, both of them begin, like I say, as outsiders who are very sort of ostracized or distant from civilization and they're only out, out for themselves. And Max is still dressed in the same leather as the biker, so it's very much like you could become like one of them at yeah. any minute. But eventually he's able to sort of overcome his grief and regain his humanity so that he decides actually regardless of whether or not it's the right thing for me, the right thing for the settlers is that I help them to get this you know, tanker of oil to this settlement on the coast. And as a result of, and that is very much kind of the Western elements of the film coming out, where you have you know, the outside, the distant law enforcer, like I suppose in True Grit, where you have you know, the Rooster Coburn character, although he is a marshal, so that's, that's slightly less of an outsider, but it is the point of someone who could drift onto either side of the law, yeah. going yeah. in and actually doing what's necessary, regardless of whether it's actually the right thing for him or her to do. Yes, yeah, <clears throat> that's the memory that the marshal really was, that he was doing the right thing regardless of whether it was in the law or out of the law wasn't it <laughs> exactly <laughs> so. i mean it's a it's the line in true grit isn't it now how many men have you shot and it's it shot or killed <laughs> <laughs> so to kind of start running this off the performances are absolutely brilliant i mean 
for all that's been written about Mel Gibson more recently and his recent work, I mean, I'm not going to defend his allegedly anti-Semitic comments, but there was a point in his early career when he was one of the most commanding screen presences, and his entrance in this is one of the coolest in 80s cinema, where basically you get out of the prologue and it kind of, you hear this distant rumbling, and then, and then suddenly, and you see the camera panning back from this massive supercharger, and he's just staring behind the wheel, and you think, yes, coolest guy ever. Yeah. And he's just, and then you get the music and everything, yeah. so he has this burning intensity which if you've seen him in stuff like Gallipoli the Peter Weir film he just has this way of looking at you on screen which is like I am going to explode but you can trust me <laughs> <laughs> so there was there are a couple of other notable performances Bruce Spence who plays the gyro cats and he's very good I mean it is a kind of wacky supporting performance and he kind of comes in wearing a, an old-fashioned flying helmet with a crossbow so you do think okay it's just gonna be sort of play for laughs a bit like short round in the temple yeah. of doom but he is very convincing I mean we sort of begin to question whether he could survive crashing so many times because he is quite accident prone <laughs> but he, no he's likable there is a couple of su good support performance from uh, Vernon Wells who plays Wes which is like the humongous right hand man who's got a massive Mohican and wears spikes and all the kind of you know, stuff that Vivian Westwood yeah. is putting out at the time and Max Phipps who plays the uh, his toady who's the henchman who gets his finger severed off but he's very much playing him like you know ron lacy's character in Raider of the lost art the, uh, yeah. the gestapo officer who gets the the medallion burned into his hand yes. yeah he's very much like a parody of that and it's a very sort of knowing parody so like i said to sum up it's every bit as brilliant as the original if not slightly more intelligent and much sort of easier to get into there are frenetic action sequences but they belie a very basic but meaty storyline which like i say draws on western elements and it gives us a lot to chew on and it has the same sort of brooding dread at the heart of great westerns and most of all it is absolute proof if anyone says to you oh all action movies are stupid action movies are just loads of people getting hit no they can be about politics and social issues as well so it's not perfect but it deserves your full attention and it is a cult classic you've sold it absolutely sold it <laughs> you're going to get it on dvd yes indeed right um, shall we just take a quick break and then uh, talk about this week's new releases? Yeah, okay. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from Attic. This is Lionheart Radio. That was a sudden end to it, wasn't there? Black Eyed Peas can't, just can't get enough. Next week, one for the fans of The Who, isn't it? Quadrophenia is what we're doing next week. Yes, that should be one to look forward to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Great. I may even dig some Who music out for the, uh, for the occasion. Good man. Great. You've got another vinyl of that in your loft. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was one I never did buy on vinyl. Oh, right. So I think I'm sure I've got it in compilation CDs, and we've got a few of them on here as well. So Good. We shall uh, dig something out for Yeah, next I mean, I've got week. the double album and the soundtrack, so yes. I, can, no, I can supply you with that very easily. Indeed. Right. So, that's something to look forward in, to in next week's programme. For the rest of this week's programme, we've got... Uh, 15 minutes and five films, so let's crack on, shall yeah, we? Yeah, let's barrel through. Uh, Limitless. Yeah, a new film by Neil Berger, who's the guy who made The Illusionist, not the recent Jacques Tati animation, but the film about magicians, which came out around the same time as Christopher Nolan's The Prestige, which is quite unfortunate, because The Prestige is a wonderful film, and up until Inception, it was the best thing that he'd made. This is based on a novel uh, by Alan Glynn called The Dark Fields, and the story is Bradley Cooper, who's the attractive one out of The Hangover, he's a failing writer who has missed the deadline for his latest book, and been dumped by his girlfriend who's played by Abby Cornish. One day he comes across a man called Vernon, nothing inherently sinister about that, who gives him a drug called NZT, uh, which I almost thought was TMZ, but of course that's something <laughs> slightly different, uh, which he gives him this drug which he claims will increase his brain power and so he takes the drug and he finds that his intelligence instantly expands and he knows pretty much everything and he becomes a successful businessman on the stock market. 
on the one hand, this story is quite familiar. I mean, the premise... Yeah, I was about to say, it sounds sort of familiar. The premise <laughs> is like a sort of Twilight Zone episode of, you know... I mean, the whole premise of most Twilight Zone episodes is be careful what you wish for, and it does yeah. very much like, what could you do if you had, you know, the, the power to almost know everything and that sort of thing. There are also similarities with the early work of Darren Aronofsky. It's like Pi in the sense that you have a guy who is so intelligent, he kind of borders on mentally ill, and yeah. he ends up having a nervous breakdown because, you know, his brain can't keep up with his body, essentially. Um, and in terms of its treatment of drugs, it's kind of like Requiem for a Dream, but with all the, the rough edges taken off. There is also similarities to a film from 1968 called Charlie, in which you have a mentally challenged bakery worker who volunteers for a government program to take a drug that will improve his intelligence, but he ends up kind of alienating everyone he loves. It was kind of satire of all those government experiments yeah. to find a cure for the cold in the 50s, but it turned out they were testing biological warfare. So in spite of those reservations, it's actually pretty decent, albeit as a kind of silly Star Trek Twilight Zone slice of entertainment. I mean, Robert De Niro's in it quite briefly, and of all his recent kind of, I'm going to do a big speech and then pick up the check performances, it is one of the better ones. Um, I like Abby Cornish. There is also a supporting performance by Anna Friel, who is, you know, becoming a decent actress after all those kind of years of, you know, just being famous for the one who had the lesbian kiss off Brookside. I mean, she was in Breakfast in Tiffany's recently on the West End and apparently got very good ratings. Yeah. So it's kind of swings and roundabouts, and it's not going to be the most substantial work. And it, like I say, it is in the end pie light and requiem for a dream light. But if you're a fan of Aronofsky, it's probably fine. Right. So that's a. a, a a good set. A it's good a swings and roundabouts yeah. thing. I mean, if, if you like sort of thrillers and, and uh, films about drugs, it'll be your thing. Right. One I know you are going to recommend is The Eagle. Yeah, a uh, new film from Kevin McDonald, who's the guy who made uh, Touching the Void, Last King of Scotland, State of Play. He's also, um, he comes from a filmmaking family who, because he and his brother Andrew are grandsons of the almighty Emmerich Pressburger. Oh. So there is a sort of... Yes, you know, pedigree. One hell of a reputation to live up to. Um, so based on a 1954 historical novel by Rosemary Sutcliffe, which is set in the year AD 140, at the beginning of the film, the Ninth Legion, who were kind of stationed in the north of England, go off into Scotland and basically disappear. Twenty years later, you have a soldier called Marcus Aquila, who's played by Channing Tatum, and his slave, played by Jamie Bell, who is from the northeast originally, yes, I think. Yes, he is, yes. Um, they go beyond the newly erected Hadrian's Wall to recover the standard, or the Eagle of the Ninth, which was born by Channing Tatum's father. Again, like Limitless, it's very, very good fun. I mean, it is a 12A certificate, but it's full-on kind of swordplay 12A certificate. I mean, if you're a fan of Gladiator, which I am, it's kind of, it shows how far we've come on, because Gladiator was originally a 15, but I suppose if you made that now, it would get a 12. So there's lots of swordplay, big battles, you kind of have these um, kind of picked warriors called the seal people who come on in kind of strange hair and woad. Yeah. So it's all that sort of full-on stuff. I mean, if you saw Neil Marshall's Centurion last year, which kind of did that thing from more sort of horror perspective, then you will like this. There have been comparisons made between both Gladiator and Dances with Wolves, both of which are quite dangerous because Gladiator is just terrific. I mean, it's yeah. a film that kind of marries big action set pieces with metaphysics because it is about the Elysian fields and, you know, the anti-hero. And Dances with Wolves... I, I don't know whether you whether you like it, but I've always found that a bit dull and a bit too sort of worthy for its own. Yeah, opinion. I think I probably agree with you on that. Too. Yeah, I mean, like I said um, when we reviewed the company made a couple of weeks ago, yeah. Kev, um, Kevin Costner is one of these people who just you just say lighten up, stop yeah. making such ponderous films. So Kevin McDonald's a very good director. I mean, he does do a very good job of putting people in extremists on screen. Obviously, touching the void is about people yeah. trying to survive having fallen off a mountain, and Last King of Scotland's about the Armin. So he's used to this kind of. It's shot by Anthony Dodd Mantle 
Mantle, who's the guy who shot Slumdog Billionaire and you know, is a very good cinematographer. There have been some criticisms of Channing Tatum's performance because he is, I think when I was doing the show with Paul Young, he described him as a walking lump of granite. And he is... <laughs> Paul impressed with him, yes. yes. But... As a piece of, like I say, boy's own action, yeah. full-on entertainment, it's pretty damn good. Yeah. It's good to see Jamie Bell maturing into a, yeah. a good actor. You always worry about child stars, whether they'll manage it, but he's, yeah. he's one who seems to have uh, crossed the gap. Yeah, and I, I mean, he, he's recently done kind of more sort of blockbuster stuff like Doug Lehman's Jumper, which wasn't very good, although he used the best thing in that. He's a very talented actor, and I hope he does kind of more stuff like this in the future. Yes, yes. Will, Dan will Daniel Radcliffe follow? I should hope so. Yes. 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 Who's off to the stage? But that's a different story. Anyway, uh, faster. I suspect not quite as enthused. <sighs> not enthusiastic at all, I'm afraid. It's the new idiotic revenge film starring uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. It's directed by the guy who made Notorious, not the Hitchcock film, obviously, but there was a biography of uh, Notorious B.I.G., the rapper, which was a very flawed film, to say the least. The story, for what there is of it, um, The Rock has been in prison for ten years. He plays a character called Driver, so you already know how sort of generic this is. Comes out of prison and sets out to hunt down and kill the man who put him there. Meanwhile, there's another guy who is pursuing The Rock with intention of killing him so you know and the tagline for it is slow justice is no justice and justice is swift vengeance it's faster so there isn't a huge amount to say apart from the fact that it's another meat-headed revenge film which like so many kind of hypocritically condemns violence while reveling in it i mean have you seen death wish the yes. michael winner film yes, yes which was indeed. very much a film which kind of said which sort of glorified the violence it was putting forward while sort of hinting at the end that actually it was going to be the character's undoing but it was very much it was a sort of yeah. very reprehensible film and the problem with all of these revenge films is that they're not Get Carter because Get Carter actually managed to do that sort of storyline while very, showing very well yes, yes while showing that actually both sides are bankrupt and that violence is its own undoing and if, again that's on the podcast so like I say it is just another revenge film which consists of, you no know, people getting killed in horrible ways and you sort of being made to sympathise with it, so it's stupid and reprehensible. Right. Hopefully slightly better with the next one. A 3D film. Yes, albeit one of the ones for which 3D might be considered more appropriate. We're talking about Cave of Forgotten Dreams, which is the new film, new documentary by Werner Herzog, who is best known for his uh, dramatic films, um, you know, Gear the Wrath of God, Fitzcarraldo. Most recently, he made a very odd crime film with David Lynch called My Son, My Son, What Have Ye Done? Which was very little seen, but it was quite good in a sort of odd sort of way. Um, his most famous documentary up until this point would have been probably Grizzly Man. Have you seen that? No. A uh, documentary came about about five years ago, something like that. It's about a failed actor uh, called Timothy Treadwell who lived with a pack of grizzly bears yeah. for 13 years until one day they decided to eat him. And, uh, yeah, it's classic sort of Herzog thing of, you know, finding uh, <coughs> darkness and sort yeah. of, you know, the, the existential stuff in, in whichever situation he takes on. So this is a documentary about the Chauvet Cave, I think I'm pronouncing that right, in France, which was recently unearthed. It contains some of the earliest cave drawings in the world, and the people who run the cave, uh, because they're so fragile, they only allow a listen um, listeners, viewers, in uh, twice a year, because, like I said, the drawings are so unstable that if you yeah. breathe upon them, they would actually start Gosh. to decay in front of you. So it is the classic Herzog premise of going into, like, an extraordinary area or story and exploring the higher state of human existence. I mean, he He's a very public atheist, but he is interested in the whole idea of um, ecstatic truth and what he calls it, you know, kind of the higher yeah. meaning of a life. 
it's also a showcase for kind of just how well you can make a film under very restrictive conditions. I was reading about this on Wikipedia. They were only allowed in for a few hours over a four-day period. They had to wear protective suits. They couldn't touch any part of either the cave or the flooring, so they had to kind of stay on this walkway that was always at least two metres away from the drawings. Uh, they had to have oxygen standing by because there's a lot of radon in the caves, which of course gives you cancer. <laughs> yeah. If you've, been, if you've lived in Cornwall, there's a lot of radon down there as well. And, of course, if you're filming in 3D, because, you because you're doing a stereoscopic vision, you have to have two cameras rolling at the same time, so you've got very tiny space. And because the cameras, they couldn't give off any excess heat, they had to be done with hand-wound or batteries. So you, it's like the old kind of yeah. films of people hand-cranking cameras, you know, on the... Uh, that is a, that's a challenge, is, isn't it? It is a real challenge, it and it's is. kind of... Un, it is testament to the you know, to Herzog's skill as a filmmaker that he yeah. could make the film, let alone do it so well. So could this be a candidate for one of the awards when we get round to next year's well, seasons? Well, um... It, it may well get a shouting for Best Documentary. I mean, I, I'm, I don't know whether it sort of played in America beforehand and tried yeah. to get into the long list for last year's, but it might still be eligible. My only reservation about this is the 3D. I mean, Herzog has said himself that he won't use 3D again. He thought that it was right for this project, but otherwise he wouldn't yeah. consider doing it. And I do think that, in general, 3D puts a kind of barrier between the audience and what you're seeing. So I recommend seeing it in 2D, but taken as a documentary about, like I say, our ancestors and about anthropology and, you know, kind of spiritual and ideas about where we come from, I think it's a very fine achievement. So presumably it's going to be a Tyneside Theatre uh, cinema job if people want to see it. I dare say it will be. Rather than the mainstreams. Mm-hmm. Well, there might be, because a lot of multiplexes have 3D screens, you might find the odd one playing it, but I don't know whether The Gate in Newcastle will be doing it. Right. Okay. And uh, finally this week, Country Strong. Uh, yes, a uh, new film from writer-director Shana Feste, who um, you probably wouldn't heard of. She made a little scene film called The Greatest, which is famous for the fact that it's the last thing Kerry Mulligan made before she became a star with an education. So, you know, it's kind of her interesting only as kind of seeing her before she became a star in the same way as, you know, the early work of Jodie Foster before she became, you know, Dr. Letter. And that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, so the story is um, Gwyneth Paltrow plays a washed-up country and western singer who's just come out of rehab and she's looking to go back on tour to sort of reassert herself. While in the rehab centre she had an affair with a man who runs it, who's called Bo, and she wants him to kind of come on to her and open for her that he has other ideas. He's found this sort of glammed up beauty queen who can sing a bit and wants to be a singer so they kind of bring her along. As with Limitless, we have seen this quite a lot before. I mean, if you saw Crazy Heart, um, which won an Oscar in two, I think it was last year's ceremony, but it came out in 2009, it is that same sort of story of, you know, a washed-up guy or girl who's trying to get back on the road. I mean, Crazy Heart was essentially Tender Mercy's light, which was itself a bit of a rip-off of A Star Is Born. So it's the same sort of yeah. story just being kind of trotted out. And, and this is, it feels like a film that only exists because of Crazy Heart. Um, it's a very predictable plot, very sort of clearly drawn characters. You can kind of, if you stop the film halfway through and said, okay, who's going to end up with whom and what's going to happen, you could pretty much guess. The singing's okay. I mean, the music itself, you know, it's actually rooted in country. I think some of it might even have T-Bone Burnett's stamp on it. But otherwise, there's not much to grab you, frankly. Right. So, a definite for the eagle. Yeah. Definite for Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Yes. Uh, Limitless, I think you quite like. Limitless is fine. I mean, it's, yeah. it's better than I think we had any right to expect, considering the sort of the way it's been marketed. So the film of the week is The Eagle followed by Cave of Forgotten Dreams because I think you'll stand more chance of seeing The Eagle. Um, failing that in the top ten, it's The Adjustment Bureau. Great. And that's just about all we've got time for this week. But we should just say a few words about Elizabeth Taylor, who, yeah, sadly, uh, the world lost one of its greats this week. Mm -hmm. um, 
And it was interesting just to be reminded of what a great child actress she was. Yeah, I'm not familiar with her with her younger work. I mean, yeah, they were showing some of the um, some of the bits that she made as a, as a child. Very very uh, compelling films. Mm. You know, back in a, for me in an era when acting film acting at least seemed to be just shout at each other, and it was done quite subtly. So. Uh, yes. Uh, I don't know what it is about 60s films made in Britain. It seemed to be the sole way you could act in those days was to shout at the, uh, the camera. Well, the, don't know. That is within melodrama, I suppose. I mean, because yeah. Elizabeth Taylor, from what I remember reading about her, I mean, obviously she's yeah. kind of most famous for her relationships yeah. with Richard Burton, and I'm a huge Richard Burton fan. Yeah. Um, but she was one of the people who actually studied, she came out of kind of matinee idol acting, but she kind of, not matinee idol, out of melodrama, but she sort yeah. of studied at the actor's studio, and she was in the original version of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, the Tennessee Williams play, and got rave reviews, which sort of landed her the role in Cleopatra. Yeah. So, yeah. A great um, loss. A great loss, and you know, all the kind of cliched stuff about we'll never see her likes again. Um, I... If you want to see her finest hour, I would, although Cleopatra is bloated and all over the place, she is great in it. So I suggest you put aside three or four hours and go and get the director's cut version of that. Excellent. Well, thanks, Daniel. You'll be back next Saturday. We will. Uh, we'll be doing Quadrophenia. Out of our brains on the yes. 515. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks very much to John Gwyther, who eventually got on the phone to talk to me about uh, the cross-country championships. They start, of course, at uh, the Pastures, one o'clock this afternoon. Good luck to Duchess's High School in that my other reporters today daniel freeman elliot cook simon owen russell hargreaves <sighs> and we're all back next saturday between 8 and 11 coming up next the latest news from london read by nick Qureshi. bye bye from both of us Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.